Monday night, May 6th at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco. You're invited to join athletes and celebs at the Bay Area Sports Hall of Fame Enshrinement Dinner. Be there to celebrate this year's class featuring Olympic swimmer Jenny Thompson, San Jose Earthquakes legend Chris Wondolowski, Niners Super Bowl hero John Taylor, Sharks icon Patrick Marlowe, and the architect of the Giants dynasty, Brian Sabian. Be a part of this star-studded evening benefiting Special Olympics Northern California. To purchase tickets, visit Bayshoff.org. That's B-A-S-H-O-F.org. He's a coach. He's a broadcaster. He's Drew Remenda. And you're listening to The Drew Remenda Show. Welcome to, uh, what are we going to call this? Drew Remenda with you on the Sharks Audio Network. And, you know, we get to listen to this guy all the time. We get to watch this guy all the time. Um, we love his commentary because he sees everything. NHL Stanley Cup champion, the one they only Brett Hedekin. Brester, how are you, man? Good, Drew. How are you? I'm good. Well, the reason I wanted to talk to you is because you and I have had great conversations before. We've always we've always talked hockey and we've always looked at things just deeper than the team we're covering. And but I want to go back. I want to kind of just talk about Brett Hedekin, how we got to where we are with the, with who you are at this point. So let's go back to the start. Brett Hedekin as a young man, little guy playing hockey. When did you fall in love with the game? Boy, I, I think I fell in love with it early on. I mean, I, you know, when you grow up in Minnesota, you know, it's like Texas football or Alabama, you know, or <laughs> Illinois basketball, if you will, where, you know, there's a basketball court on every corner. And just like in Minnesota, there's a hockey rink at the end of every block where the park is and they would flood it. And, you know, I, I grew up in my youth, you know, on the weekends and even some weeknights, if you will, if I had my homework done. But my <laughs> mom would typically see me or at least have to find out if I was still alive. And she would drive up to the uh, the park where I'd be at the at the rink and she'd drop off a lunch in the snowbank. And and just I think just to see if I was still alive, first of all. Um, but there I would I'd be I'd be up there at the rink and, you know, spent a lot of my time there as a kid and, and just you know, knowing uh, or feeling the way I did about the game, never knowing where it would lead, you know, for me. But, um, you know, again, I think the access to rinks and access to good, uh, like our hometown, my hometown had a rink and my high school basically was attached. Like for high school, after school, you just walked right down to the rink and you could get ready and be on the ice early. And, you know, so I think access was something that was always there for me. Was, was there somebody besides your parents in your life that really influenced you in the game before you got, before you became, you know, like St. Cloud and then, and then onto the NHL, was there somebody when you were young, when you were a kid that boy, without him, I would, or without her, I wouldn't be here. Yeah. You know, I grew up, you know, in Minnesota, we didn't have a lot of live hockey professional like where you guys have up in Canada you get hockey night in Canada you have great announcers you get the teams that you followed I mean we had the Minnesota North Stars that you know weren't even on TV that much so I didn't I mean in the games that I did watch it was like I was watching the Chicago Blackhawks it seemed like all the time playing the Minnesota <laughs> North Stars and you know Denny Sabar and these great players I grew up watching but you know I had two cousins when I was young that um, I really looked up to and their brothers uh, both ended up going to Michigan University and playing uh, Pat and Dan Goff um, you know, one was a uh, the younger Dan, 
the brother was a short and uh, quick, um, agile forward. And then the older brother was a defenseman, Pat, and he was smooth skating and, and always in good position in the defensive zone. So I, I would go to their games and I would watch them play. And I would kind of, you know, get in my mind of, of being each one of those two guys as a kid. And, um, you know, I, th I had a lot of good coaches early on as far as uh, speed uh, skating or, you know, power skating. Uh, this woman, Sue Pearson, I took a lot of power skating from her uh, as a kid. And I think she had a lot of influence on the way I skated. Um, but those are some of the little things I remember about my youth and, and really trying to model my game after a couple of my cousins that were really great hockey players. Did you have any other sports that you loved? Yeah. I mean, I had, I actually thought I'd be a football player, Drew. That doesn't surprise yeah. me. Doesn't surprise played, me. Played a lot of football as a kid and, and was quarterback all the way up until high school. <laughs> and then, and then I'll, I'll tell you, I had to quit after my freshman year football season because my sophomore and junior, I was starting to get killed. I was only five foot six. Really? You know? So I, yeah, I was, I hadn't hit my growth spurt yet and I was starting to get pummeled on the football field. So I ended up playing soccer for two years, never played soccer in my life, showed up on the soccer field, said, Hey, <laughs> I'm going to do something to stay in shape for hockey. And uh, so I played soccer for the two years. Then I grew seven inches. And so I played football my senior year of high school. Are you kidding me? Yeah, it was great. I loved it. Um, but that, you know, that seven inches also did a lot for my hockey career as well. Yeah. And, you know, now it was all of a sudden this kid that could skate. And now he was, you know, six two. So it was it's funny yeah. now, though, you know, we, we have, in my opinion, too many kids. It's just one sport. Like in, 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 in Canada, it's hockey 365 the kids finish their league and then they go to a summer camp then they go to um individual training and it's all surrounded by the game i don't know how many more how many athletes we have anymore in the game or in, in just in life totally agree I, I think it's a it's really hard for me to watch kids just do one sport now yeah. i think when you look at an athlete um, and, and even when you think about hockey and I can, I can extrapolate this out into a professional career when that's all you do is skate and how your body becomes warped, yeah. you, you're no longer, you know, what I say, you know, you're playing on an eighth inch piece of steel and when your skate hits the ground or the ice in this case, and you pull the ice away, you're not even using your hamstring. It's, it's basically skipping the hamstring. It kind of goes into the growing and then you thrust with your quad and your glute and then your hip flexor brings the leg back. So over time, your, your hamstrings start to shut down. And so that's something for me, um, when thinking about a young athlete, and then you say athlete, and I think that's exactly what we want. When we watch Connor McDavid, we're seeing an athlete yeah. out there that's got eye-hand coordination, his body's all working together, and he's being able to do things at a high level. But uh, I think kids today need to play more sports. They need to meet more kids within sports. They need to have different coaches within different sports that give them different experiences and realize how important not only these different exercises and different things that you do in different sports and the way your muscles work, but also just that camaraderie that you feel within different types of sports. So I, I'm really encouraging that for, for all athletes. A few, a few years ago, when I, when I was still here, the, the, I guess that was my third year, go around with the Sharks, um, you and I had this talk of like talking about hamstrings because my knees were so bad. And you and I had this talk. Have you always been into that kind of kinesiology? And like, where did that come from? 
Well, you know, I think I always say, you know, when you play 17 years in the NHL, you end up getting a PhD and getting your ass kicked. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, but I, I did have a, a, you know, in college, I was, a, you know, got into exercise physiology and took a lot of biology and chemistry and science and anatomy and, and kind of pre-med, if you will. And then obviously, you know, as you leave college and go to do your thing and hockey is what I did. And I kind of got away from it, but you know, again, having all the different types of injuries. And when you're a true pro, I think you, you're always looking for ways to, of staying healthy, first of all. And, you know, in your off season, you're always looking at, you know, reasons why maybe for me, I always looked at myself as how am I not being able to play 82 games? You know, why is my body not able to withstand the rigors of an 82 game schedule? And so I was constantly looking at my training and, and, and really questioning a lot of times my training and so I was always searching for different ways to train. And I think that's what kind of led me down these different paths of, you know, how the body really truly works, which I felt like my last several years, I had a pretty good understanding. You also did though, you worked yourself mentally too, in that regard, if I remember correctly, early in your career, didn't you start watching video of yourself long before the iPad and the phones and here watching, watch these last few shifts from a video coach? Yeah, it's amazing now. You, you can go right back to the bench on uh, an NHL yeah. uh, bench now, and you can look at the iPad and watch your last shit. That's incredible. Yeah, for me, I was early on starting to look at video of me playing. And, you know, the way you can explain it is it was hard to watch <laughs> when, <laughs> when, you're, when you're not liking what you're seeing, right? <laughs> okay, and, wait a minute. Let's, wait, hold on for a second. Are, are you that type of guy? Are you... I think early on, yeah, okay. Early on, when I when I was really learning the game at the NHL level, it was hard to watch myself play because I was making so many mistakes. But I think you have to continue to watch. You have to continue to learn. And I think that early adoption of watching myself play and you know having that mental visualization when you see yourself and then seeing different plays that you can make. And as you mentioned, I did spend a lot of time on the mental side of the game. You know, in my mid-20s, after playing in a Stanley Cup uh, in, in 94 with the Vancouver Canucks, you know, I realized that there were moments during that Stanley Cup run that I had a lot of confidence in certain series. And then other series, for whatever reason, I kind of struggled with it a little bit. And then in, in the Stanley Cup finals, those seven games, I felt really good. But then in game seven, I felt a little bit tight. Mm -hmm. I felt like I, I was, you know, kind of holding back a little bit. And, you know, maybe fear, what all, the, all those things that kind of creep in. And so I guess my point is, is I think one of the things of being a good pro is being able to self-assess, being able to look at yourself honestly and to realize, you know, where are your weaknesses and, and what types of things do you need to address to continue to evolve as a professional athlete and, and to continue to improve? I think that was one of the things that allowed me to continue to play for a long time. How did you kind of adapt that because you know when I was of course 100 years ago coaching players were really resistant to really honest self-critique or even critique from the outside how did you would how did you accept that from coaches but also decide to yourself I, I gotta be I gotta be painting myself into a into a corner here if I'm gonna be able to evolve Humility. I, I think humility, you have to have that ability to know that your, you know, your ego has to stand down. 
And you should become a broadcaster if you have, if you have humility and you have to put your ego aside. <laughs> no, sorry. Anyway, go on, please. <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I, you know, I wish I could take some of that out as a broadcaster, right? I think sometimes I, I get in my own head, you know, when I'm when I'm broadcasting, you know, and I just want to say as this opens up right now, Drew, I'm I'm so excited to have you back. Uh, you know, for you and Randy, for it's so good for our fans to be able to not only you know, hear from different voices and, and different voices that have had different experiences, like your coaching experience and the, and the things that you've done in the game is so good for our fans. And for you to be able to call some great games this year again with Randy, I am excited about that. I'm excited about doing radio and, and going back and forth. Our fans for the Sharks deserve it. They deserve somebody like you to come in and, and, and give them great perspective. You know why? Because they trust you. And, and I think that's a great thing to have trust and I'm, I'm just going to love this this year, working back with you and, and, and enjoy this process. But yeah, Thanks, buddy. I think you're being I think you're being far too kind as the fans have. But um, I, I can just tell you just from my own personal point of view, I'm so happy to be home. Um, it's incredible. OK, yeah. let's go back. Let's go back to you and taking the ego out of assessment, out of your play. Yeah, I think, you know, there's there were a lot of tough times, you know, Drew, when you are getting feedback. Um, feedback is never easy for anybody. Right. Um, when somebody says, Hey, you've got to do better at this, or you've got to really work on this. Um, I think I was thirsty, thirsty better, you know, maybe a three sport athlete, um, as a kid. And, you know, I, I was learning a lot as I went and I was getting better as I went. I didn't play hockey, you know, 12 months out of the year. So, you know, when I was focusing on football and other things, I think, you know, I, all of a sudden I hit the scene pretty hard when I grew seven inches and, and, you know, college came and I didn't play much as a freshman, but then my sophomore and junior year, I just kind of exploded onto the scene. And after my junior year, I, I got asked to try out for the national team. I make the team. I leave school as a senior before you know it. I play in the Olympic games, a, a dream that I had, I was a 10 year old kid. So then all of a sudden here you are, you know, in the national hockey league after the Olympic games, it, it was, it happened so fast that I don't know if I, my body, my brain and all of that stuff could kind of come together. And if I was even ready to play at the national hockey league level. So I knew I was, I had a lot to learn. I knew I had a lot to catch up to do to kind of get to the point where I wanted to be a better player. Um, the environment in St. Louis might not have been the best as a, as a rookie there my first couple of years. And so I battled a lot of internal demons within the team. And then also, um, you know, my own personal game had an injury early as a, as a rookie, uh, blew up, you know, tore my MCL and I had to come back from that. Anyway, I'm dragging that on. My point would be is I think I was just thirsty to learn. I knew I had a lot to learn and I just knew I had to kind of go into those uncomfortable situations uh, of feedback to get better. Okay, let's go to the Sharks for a second then. When you look at the situation with William Eklund coming in and, you know, in their situation where they've, they've lost so many players to the virus, it would have been really tempting for the Sharks to keep him. Is, is, this, the good, is this the right move for William to go back to Jure Gardens, play in the World Junior, maybe play in the World Championships, and be, and just, like you say, grow, develop, and try to get ready? Or can you ever get ready for your first NHL season? Um, well, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the pretty much the goal of the year that uh, Connor McDavid scored the other night, yeah. seeing his interview after the game, I just sat and I watched him, his neck, 
his upper body. He looks different to me physically 100%. than what he looked like when he was a rookie. Right? 100%. It, it, it's, it's not even close. Nope. And, and the way I explained this to Randy and, and even to you guys the other day, as far as if you've ever shook the hand of a bricklayer, it, it, it's a gristled <laughs> hand, right? It's a hand that has callus. The fingers are big. How many bricks have gone off those fingers to allow the mass to build up on those fingers to allow himself to be able to be a bricklayer for years and years? And I feel like when I look at William Eklund, just turning 19, and you see this body there hasn't been enough bricks that have been laid down on top of this kid that has allowed his body to adapt to its environment, right? So, and I look at the environment of the NHL, my body changed every year. I mean, even Kevin LeBanc, I see him from yeah. today to what he looked like even a few years ago, his body is starting to adapt to the rigors of an NHL schedule. And so um, I think for the best health of this young man is to take the knowledge of nine games in the National Hockey League, go back to, to Sweden, play in the World Juniors, be a leader on that, be a captain on that team, go win a gold medal, um, have some experiences in your life with that knowledge of those nine games of what it's going to take to get through the rigors of an, of an 82-game schedule and potentially playoffs. It's going to take a lot for this young man, and you wouldn't want to ruin him right now. Let's let him develop the way he should. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, it's, I, I think you're right on the money there. So, were you ever comfortable in the NHL? Were you ever at a point where you're like, when you became a vet and you're, okay, I'm, I'm good. I'm an established NHL. Well, so think about this. When I was 20 years old, when I went in the NHL, I think when I was 36, <laughs> you're talking 16 years of, oh man, what do you call a, a yo-yo up and down? But I think truthfully, if you ask honestly any NHL player, they're going to tell you that it, it, it's years of, of going up and down. But I would say when I, when I got in my mid thirties and I had many years of doing mental reps, a lot of visualization, understanding what, what I call my power thoughts where you write out the things that you do well and you have a really clear understanding when you step onto the ice of what makes you a good hockey player. I'm not going to be Brent Burns. I wasn't going to be, you know, Bobby Orr. I wasn't going to be, you know, you just have to be you, but you have to go onto the ice and understand to be a good national hockey league player and to have that confidence you're talking about is when you step over that threshold onto the ice of having a clear vision of what you're going to do every night and not try to do too much. And I think after years of doing the mental visualization and, and, and having a, a, a many experiences and games played, you realize that you, you can play hurt, you can play sick, you can play uh, where your confidence has been up and down because now your confidence isn't rising up and down anymore. It's staying pretty level. You can rebound after a tough play. Uh, those are the things that make you a really good pro, but it took a long time, Drew, I will say. So, were you unique in that category as far as those mental reps you talk about? Because you and I have talked about this before where you put a lot into thinking and mentally working at being a pro than just the physical aspect. hundred percent. And, and where did, did you just, was that self-taught? Um, again, I think self-evaluation um, and looking for, ways of getting better. I met a guy um, up in 
Vancouver, Saul Miller, sports psychologist, and spent a lot of time working with Saul, well-known uh, sports yeah. psychologist up in Canada. Um, he, for whatever reason, we hit it off, and I think his way of teaching it really resonated with me. And I think the biggest thing, and you talked to, uh, earlier about me, am, am I one of those guys? Am I hard on myself? Am I too hard on myself? Yeah. And I think there's a, <laughs> there's a balance, I think, to be a good pro of being too hard on yourself. And I wish I wouldn't have been so hard on myself. I, I wish I would have had that personality where I would just ease up on myself. But then again, what, if I wasn't so hard on myself, would I have not kept searching for answers? Would I not kept looking at myself just saying, hey, I'm really weak in these areas. And so I think in those mid to late 20s, I was struggling mentally going up and down and tough night, good night. You, you can't fight those things anymore at this level. You just can't. You've got to learn to either adapt, learn how to get better at the mental game, or you better find a new job <laughs> because it's, it's not going away, right? That's the thing that I, I look at some of these pros now, and there's a lot of guys I can even watch on the Sharks that continue to have to you know, work on their mental side of the game yeah. because they shouldn't have those ups and downs, those big – uh, sweeping lows and big highs, they, they should find that level game. And that's, to me, that speaks to mental toughness and really the, the mental reps that they need to start to do. We've had uh, lots of talks on coaching and coaches and you've, you've played for, for quite a few. Did you learn more from the good coaches or the bad coaches? <laughs> good question. <laughs> um, you know, one of the guys that taught me, that I needed to get better at the mental side of the game was Mike Keenan. Okay. Hey, now, sorry, excuse me. I had a talk with Mark Messier the other day. I know Robert De Niro told me never to drop names, but anyway, we was on the radio show. Okay. Um, and he also brought up Mike Keenan about being somebody who really, you know, helped him, but that was a, a give and take too. So we've got the, we've all got this image of Mike Keenan. No, I'm really interested in hearing that. Sorry, I'm sorry for interrupting. Go ahead. No, and I'm I'm probably going to put him in the class of you know not the good coach, but yeah, I I think he he had some ways about him, uh, kind of a little bit of a method to his madness. And you know when I had him in Vancouver the first time, <laughs> I had him twice. He uh, he played all those mind games with me and others and guys that you know were there in Vancouver for many, you know since the '94 finals, and then he came in. Uh, you know, four years later, five years later. And, you know, when he played those mind games with me and trying to get in, you know, under my skin and, and trying to drive me to just pull my hair out yeah. at that point, um, I realized when he traded me the day, I'll never forget, we were in Dallas and we, it was at Reunion Arena, the old Dallas yeah, the old Arena. Right. And we, the hotel was across the street. I got to the hotel. I put my bags in. We were going to supposed to go walk right over the rink because we're going to have practice right away. My phone rings as I walk into my hotel room and it's a reporter, Ian McIntyre from Vancouver. <laughs> and he says, did you just get traded? I said, huh, no, I had, nobody's mentioned it to me. I guess I'm, I should be anticipate something hung up, went down to the rink. Um, I'm basically taking my suit off, getting ready to get dressed for practice. And um, a trainer says, Hey, Mike wants to see you out in the hallway. I'm standing in my underwear. I hadn't even put all my gear on for my equipment yet uh, to go under my equipment. I walk out in the hallway in my underwear. There's Mike Keenan. And he says, uh, hey, Brett, we, uh, we made a trade today. And we traded you to the Florida Panthers with Pavel Bure. Want to wish you the best of luck. <laughs> and I, I, I literally, I felt that was the first time in my career I felt like really somebody gave up on me. I felt the Vancouver Canucks and Mike Keenan quit on me. 
And it was like a punch to the face. And I looked at Mike and I said, Mike, I'm never going to forget this moment the rest of my life. No one will ever control this ever again. I guarantee that. I said, you know what? I said, maybe our paths will cross again someday. And I, and I was pissed. And I, there were yeah. some bombs yeah. in there. And I shook his hand and I was out of there three years later. And I vowed at that moment that no one will ever do this and control this again. I spent day every day doing a little bit of mental reps. Three years go by. And they fire our coach. And who do they hire? They hire Mike Keenan. And I'm laughing at this point in the locker room. I'm thinking, you guys have no idea what you're up for. You have no idea what's in store for all of you. But I was like, hey, bring it on. Yeah. I, I couldn't wait to, to just say, hey, give me everything you got. And, you know, he played the snot out of me. We, you know, I, was, I got to a point, I think I could have said to him, hey, you're playing me too much. Um, <laughs> And I was going to be an unrestricted free agent. He, they were going to trade me at the end of the year. At some point they do, they trade me to Carolina. They pull me off the ice. Mike's in the training room. I walk in there and he says, Hey, Brett, just want to say, Hey, love the way you played for me. We traded you to Carolina. They're a playoff team this morning. And, uh, you know, I want to wish you the best of luck. And just as I'm, I say, Hey, Mike, thanks for everything. He said, you know what? Maybe our paths will cross again someday. Oh, Yeah. So he remembered that conversation yeah. that I had three years earlier. So, you know, I think Mike Keenan forced me to be better mentally. And, and I think that's one thing I'll never forget on a, a coach that was tough. I had a lot of great coaches, though. Pat Quinn, Peter Laviolette, Paul Maurice. These guys were just terrific people that, uh, boy, I would have loved to spend more time with all three of those guys. Let's talk about Peter Laviolette and Carolina and what I refer to as the practice, because that's a great story before you guys on your way to the Stanley cup championship. Yeah. Just another moment, you don't forget. It's funny how you, you, you remember little things of your hockey career and this might've been a little thing. I mean, it was midway through the, the season and it was a practice that was going up and down the ice guys making individual efforts, the pace, every pass was on the tape goaltenders making terrific stops accelerating to the puck breaking it out guys darting in getting open for one another and you know you could feel this something great happening on the ice I still get you know my hair on my arm stands up when I think about it because you know that's how hard this team worked not only midway through the year but even in training camp even before training camp the commitment guys showed to one another so at the end of practice, LaViolette pulls us all in and he was feeling it too. Like he felt what we all were feeling in that practice, in that moment. And you could see the steam kind of coming off every player in the, in this cold rink. And, yeah. and again, this, this rink in, in Raleigh, North Carolina, it, it's a dog. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's not the amenities you see today in the NHL. And that proves to you that you don't need the amenities to do the work. Right. And Peter just kind of looked at us all. He goes, man, that was unbelievable what I saw today. If we continue to practice like this, we're going to win the Stanley Cup. Nobody will touch us this year. And fast forward, you know, game seven of the Stanley Cup finals, that calmness that was in that locker room because everyone knew the work would, has been done. There was nothing that was left undone if you will going into that game seven we went out i thought we dominated game seven and win the stanley cup but it just goes to show you you don't win it overnight a stanley cup you don't win it by luck 
you win it through hard work and believing in one another, believing in the teammate beside you, trying to make your teammate better beside you. And you're more interested in that guy beside you than your own success. That's when you've got something special. And that's what winning, why winning is so addictive. It's addictive. And hard. And hard. Hard. Okay. Game seven, Stanley Cup at the end. Tell me that story because this is one of, besides the practice story, this is one of my favorite stories about the moment um, at the end when you guys won it. Yeah. You, you know, the goalie pulled right. a minute to go in the game. Is that what you're talking about, Drew? Yeah. yeah. You know, Rod Brindamore, you know, Peter sends him over, obviously our captain, Selkie, or trophy winner and now coach of the year. You know, Justin Williams, Mr. Game 7, just <laughs> finds a way to do it in Game 7 all the time. Eric Stahl, young rookie, phenomenal player, you know, always had, had a terrific career. And then me and Mike Commodore, I mean, yeah. on the ice to ice the game down. <laughs> Probably no business for us being on the ice. But we, we, had a, we had a connection, Mike and I, and I think Peter knew that what he could expect from us because all those repetitions through the years of, of mental training – he knew there wasn't going to be a huge highs and lows with Mike and I on the ice to kind of try to close this game down with the goalie pulled. And so, I mean, I can see the puck being dropped. I can see, you know, Roddy loses it back to Chris Pronger on the right side and the defense. He tries to thread it down that right side wall. I pinch off the, the winger. It goes back to Pronger and I settle back in into where the faceoff dot are just inside. And he tries to get it by me. And I, I in this moment, I knock it out of the air. Yeah. And all those mental reps I did, all the juggling I would do to help kind of what I call multitasking, be able to do more things at the same time. When you watch Connor McDavid, that's a perfect example of a brain that, you know, you're aspiring to be as a guy that doesn't have what Connor McDavid yeah, has, yeah. his ability to make plays. But uh, juggling, uh, jumping up and down, counting down from 100, watching a hockey game, those are things I would do before a game. And I started knocking pucks out of the air, but that moment, Pronger trying to get it by me and I knock it out of the air. I give it to Stahl. Stahl gives it to Justin Williams who splits the D and he goes down and he puts it in the empty net and ices the game three to one. And, you know, I just feel like that moment wasn't a mistake, you know, that I knock it out of the air and it wasn't a mistake that, you know, you're in an environment where you have great people that you love. I mean, you just, yeah. it just was, I think when you stay positive and you continue to work at things your whole career, you're going to get yourself in a situation where things are going to come together. And I, I just feel so fortunate to, to, you know, be part of that group and to be part of a, a winning group like that, that, uh, you know, yeah, we're champions, but it's just those feelings and those moments that you have together that you'll never forget. Um, you win the cup. You have a world champion, Olympic champion wife. You told me a great story about the moment that uh, after you guys have celebrated as a team and the families are coming out, um, when you and Christy uh, met at the, uh, for the championship. Okay, tell me that one, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, it just, you know, for somebody that's won a gold and, you know, we had just had our second daughter. She was almost one and Kira, my older, was just turned three. <laughs> and I just remember her coming onto the ice and I'd never seen her, you know, crying like this in, in I think in shock, you know, but <laughs> this disbelief and, and I know she had to do a lot during that Stanley cup run because, you know, when you have a, 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 you know, lower than one year old daughter, oh. 
baby, you know, crying and, you know, up all night. And she had to do a lot during that Stanley Cup run that, oh, man, the sacrifices she made for me to be able to just get my rest and to be able to stay uh, ready to go for the next game. I mean, you don't win it alone, man. You do not win it alone. Every name on that cup did it with not only a wife, uh, you know, family that helped them get there. And, and that's what means so much to me, you know, is that, you know, my daughters saw my name on the cup a few years later um, for the first time, Hedekin, and their name's yeah. Hedekin. And, you know, I think just of all the things that people sacrificed for me to get to that moment and for them to be able to see their dad's name on it was, was something special for me. But I think what's more special is, you know, winning it for all the people that helped you get there. There's that picture of uh, you and Christy and the cup is, is, is a terrific one because you can see how happy she is for you at that moment. Like, yeah. Let me, but honestly, does, does, do you guys ever go, well, you know, well, I won the Stanley cup and she looks at you like, yeah, is that really a world or a gold medal championship? <laughs> did, she ever, did she ever throw that one at you? <laughs> well, you know what? She, she ended up winning the mirror ball from Dancing with the Stars many oh, years ago. Oh, that's later. right. She did. That's for, I forgot that's right. But, you know, it's funny because, yeah, the gold medal of hers is in the Hall of Fame, uh, the um, Figure Skating Hall of Fame in Colorado yeah. Springs. But her mirror ball yeah. is in the house here. And I would say that my replica Stanley Cup, is above the mirror ball. It's, oh, okay. I had to push down the mirror ball. <laughs> I had to make sure that it was on a higher shelf than, than the mirror ball. Uh, no, but she, she's, uh, you know, yeah, I think I can't think of that pressure. You know, yeah. you work your whole life for those, you know, four minutes for the short program and then the six minutes for the long and to pull it all together at that moment. I mean, that's a, maybe one of the toughest things in the world to do is to win a gold in figure skating. Hey, um, did you have a tough time transferring to broadcasting because of your competitive nature? I, there's, I, I say that because broadcasting's fun. It's great. It's wonderful. We get to do, it's easy lifting. You know, it's, it's, it beats working for a limb and I always say. But there's not a day goes by when I'm watching a hockey game that I don't wish that I stayed coaching. Yeah, because you got something in it. There's a stake in it. You had played at the highest level. You won a championship. Are there times where you think to yourself, eh, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not disrespecting the broadcasting because we, it's, it's a great way. And I love talking to the fans. I love doing what we do. Yeah. But the competitive part for me is missing. Yep. I, you know, Drew, you're, you're nailing it. I think when you've been in that fire, you want to be yes. back in fire. Yeah, yeah. You want to feel the heat, and you want to feel uh, the competitive juices flowing. And you're right; it's difficult as a broadcaster to feel that. And but you, it is hard some nights that competitiveness that comes out on the broadcast yeah. that I wish I could tone down sometimes. And you have it like I do because we've been there, right? Yep. And it's hard for us guys, especially the way probably you and I are both wired. I mean, we're wired for sound, and yeah. and it's hard for us to taper it, but. Um, you know, my daughters are going to be, one's a senior this year, one's a, a sophomore, you know, you know, hopefully maybe someday I'll get that chance again to be back yeah. in the fire. I, I think I would love to be in that locker room again someday. I, I think to be able to pass on knowledge that I gathered over my years and to try to make a player better some way. How well, can I make you better? 
that's what I think when I listen to you. That's what I think too. I mean, there's there's a lot of knowledge up there. Is is that why one of the things that that, uh, that well maybe you and I both do the reason that we do it is martial arts? Yeah. 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 That competitive. I mean, not that you need to be competitive uh, in martial arts. Um, you can do martial arts without doing that, but right. I think feeling that striving towards a goal is what I really enjoy about, you know, Kung Fu and martial arts. And, and you do it too, Drew. Yeah. So you kind of, is that how you, is that why you do it? Yeah, one of the reasons yeah. I do it. Also, you know, I grew up, I love Bruce Lee. So I always wanted to be Bruce Lee. So I entered the dragon when I was 13 and that was it. I was, I went home and I said to my, my dad, my mom and dad, after I saw the movie, um, can I take karate? And my dad said, no. And I said, why? And he said, because you're going to use it on your brothers. And I went, well, duh. Yeah, of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Trying to get my ass kicked. So yes, I want to do that. But then I, you know, later on, I, I snuck out and started doing it. But that's, and I, I love martial arts because of that. You're still competing. It even goes back to what you talked about earlier. You're competing with yourself because you want to talk about something like, like any sport you try to master, but never will. And I think that's, I think that's the great challenge, a challenge of it. Like for me anyway, how about, how about you? Like what was, what got you going, going into your martial arts? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, when you, when you watch a black belt move, there's, mm -hmm. and, you know, and then you watch yourself move, you just see so much growth that needs to happen. But I think what, what martial arts has showed me, it's, it's kind of a metaphor of life and it's kind of a metaphor of, of what I saw in my hockey career is that a lot of times you're growing and you're changing, you're getting better and you don't see it. Life is that way a lot of times. You, you, you can go through life every day and you don't feel like you're getting any better, but you are. You're, you're improving on little things that you do every day. And I think when I see that within martial arts, and how far I've come in the four or five years I've been doing it, but yet how far I still have to go. You just have to keep showing up. You have to keep, you know, walking out the door and, and getting to the, you know, facility and put your stuff on and sweat and get through it and, and try to work on your movement and try to work on little things. And there's always ways of just improving. I think that's so important that it's a reminder, I guess Kung Fu has been a reminder for me that it's it's the journey and it's it's slight improvements on a daily basis that i really love about it i can't think of a better place to end than you gotta just keep showing up love you brother man thank you it was a great conversation i appreciate you coming on and uh let's do it again sometime i can't wait to see you again right, i love you too buddy hey, hey i'm so happy to have you back look forward to doing some games together and, and also listening to you as well this year so welcome back man. appreciate it pal you're listening to the Sharks Audio Network.